Well, good morning. As Pastor Aaron said, my name is Timothy. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Central. Excited to be with you all this morning. Hope you had a happy Thanksgiving, uh, whether you were here or away, and excited that you're here today, that you braved the storm and came out for this first Sunday of Advent. Uh, as is our custom, we're starting a new sermon series uh, this week for Advent, and the series is entitled The Thrill of Hope. And in this series, we're going to be looking at four passages from the book of Isaiah, a book that I might add that was written roughly 700 years before the event that Advent commemorates, before the birth of Christ. So how then, you might ask, can this book that was written 700 years before the birth of Christ help us to get ready for Christmas, ready to celebrate uh, the birth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? And as Aaron already mentioned, Advent is about expectantly awaiting. It's about awaiting the arrival of someone. And what you may not realize is that God's people had been awaiting the birth of Christ for thousands of years. Ever since God made that promise, even back in Genesis 3, that the descendant of Eve would crush the head of the serpent, God's people have been waiting. And yet here in Isaiah, God's people appear to be losing hope. Things had gotten so bad that many were beginning to think that they had been waiting in vain. And so we look here at our text here in verse 9, and in this season of hopelessness, God gives a message of hope. He sends a message through his prophet to his people that says, all is not lost. A new day is dawning. Salvation is on the horizon. Do not lose hope. And that very message that Isaiah delivered to God's people thousands of years ago is the exact same message that the Advent story speaks to us. It's the message of salvation coming down. It's a message of hope. In church, it's, it's our desire over the next four weeks that each and every week you will experience more and more of the thrill of hope that Advent brings. At this time, I'm going to invite you to stand, as is our custom as we give reverence to God's word, we're in chapter 9 of Isaiah. We're going to be starting in verse 1. This is God's word. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali but in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil for the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder and the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. 
For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of the hosts will do this. The prophet Isaiah, who we're reading this morning, tells us that the grass withers and the flowers fade, but God's word endures forever. Would you pray with me? Father, I ask that you would speak to us through your word, that you would bring to light the truth of this message, that as we now spend time in your word, God, that we would encounter you, the living God, and that we would be transformed. Father, would you give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to understand. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. I don't know about you, but I've always dreamed of visiting Alaska. Everyone who I've ever talked to who's had the opportunity to visit says it is a truly breathtaking experience. That being said, I have absolutely no desire whatsoever to live there. You could not pay me to live in Alaska, which actually the state of Alaska does. According to Business Insider, the state pays its residents up to $2,000 a year just to live there. So why do you people need to be paid to live in such a beautiful place? It's actually not the cold, I don't think, but rather I think it's because much of Alaska during the winter months experiences weeks at a time where there is literally no sunlight at all. In the northernmost town of Barrow, residents will experience over two months of continuous darkness. And what research has, has shown is that this much darkness is actually very detrimental to your health. According to a psychology professor from the University of Alaska, the most common side effects experienced by Alaskans in this season are lethargy, a heightened desire for sleep, Cravings for carbohydrates, feelings of melancholy, fuzzy thinking, loss of libido, and sociability. As you can imagine, the suicide rates peak around this time as well. Clearly, the absence of light is, is not good for the soul. Our text this morning is written to a people who are living in pitch black darkness. Not a physical darkness, but rather a metaphorical darkness, a darkness that is birthed from the absence of hope. And yet our text enters in here in chapter 9, and an announcement is made, declaring that relief is coming, that the suffocating darkness will be no more. Listen again to verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land 
of deep darkness on them has light shone. Prophet says, look on the horizon. Do, do you see it? The sun is coming up. But I want you to look closely with me now at verses 2 through 7 and pay attention to the verb tense. What's fascinating is that the prophet here uses the perfect tense. And sometimes our English translations will edit this out a bit to avoid confusion, but the reality is the prophet is speaking about an event that has not yet happened as though it is in the past. And you have to recognize here that the recipients of this message, they were very much still in the darkness when they received it. They were still under the oppressive rule of the Assyrian Empire, and they're probably scratching their heads thinking maybe Isaiah is off his rocker. There's no light anywhere. But why would the prophet speak this way? I think we, we actually do this sort of thing all the time, particularly in sports. Teammates will rally in the locker room and, and say things like, we got this. The other team is toast. And, what, and they're declaring in that moment that this victory is certain. The team is not going to be toast. They is toast right now, already cooked. And the point of this is to instill confidence, to assure one another there's no way that we can lose. And this is what Isaiah is doing here. He's saying, cheer up, take heart. I, I realize that you can't see it now, but, but rest assured the light is most certainly coming. And the hope for Isaiah was that this proclamation would have produced in God's people a great hope. In the same manner, this Advent proclamation should produce in us a great hope, a hope that no matter how dark it is, the light is coming. And yet what we learn later in this book and throughout the Old Testament is that it did not produce hope in God's people. They failed to believe the words of Isaiah and they lost hope. And in the same manner, I worry that the Advent message so often fails to produce in us the hope that is intended because we fail to truly believe it and therefore we lose hope. Now, I don't want to speak for you, so let me just speak for myself. If I'm honest, even as a pastor, I normally find it quite difficult to feel, to feel uh, the thrill of hope in the Advent season. Maybe it's just me, but deep down I know that I should be thrilled to the max and full of hope, and yet my normal response in this Advent season is often like a golf clap. Just a mediocre, not uh, mild and, and not grand response. But why is that? What, what's wrong with me or or may I be so bold to say, what's wrong with us? And as I've been pondering this text and asking that question in my own heart, I've come to recognize two things that, two reasons, if you will, why I think we so often yawn at the Advent message. The first is that I don't think we see the darkness, and the second is I think we've, we've shielded our eyes from the light. So look at these two with me now. I think we yawn because we don't see the darkness. A few years ago, I hit a rough spot emotionally. 
Uh, instead of dealing with what was going on in my heart, I instead chose to minimize everything and so, so that I wouldn't feel the pain. And, and it, it worked, kind of. Uh, I got where I was never very sad, but at the same time never very happy either. I kind of flatlined emotionally. And around that time, Daniel and I went away for nine days for a therapeutic intensive. And what that means, it was nine days of just feeling all the feels. That was the point. And when we arrived, one of the first things that was said about me was how scary it was to be with me. One of the counselors described me as like being with a ghost because I was so emotionally absent. It's not really what you want to hear from a therapist. But you want, you want to know what they did, how they brought me back to life over those nine days. What they did is they forced me to see and feel the hurt in my life. Sounds kind of cruel, doesn't it? I mean, why not start with the good stuff? Maybe that'll wake him up. The reason why they did this is because these counselors knew that I would never see the light until I first learned to see the darkness. You've probably noticed that we didn't start in the beginning of, of Isaiah. And, and by not starting in the beginning, we've missed the first eight chapters. And in these eight chapters, Isaiah goes to great lengths to make sure that the people of God understand how truly dark it is. How much darkness is around them. And what he shows them is that this darkness has multiple faces, if you will. The first face is, is pretty easy to see, and that's this physical oppression that God's people are in. They've been captured. They're slaves. They've been conquered by another nation. And so they've experienced the loss of loved one, property, employment, security. The yoke of burden that is on them is, is unbearable. And so there's this darkness of oppression and injustice, and yet the darkness is, is, is darker than even that. Not only are they experiencing a physical darkness, but also there's a great spiritual darkness that is present here. Listen to chapter 1. Isaiah says, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord and they have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. See what the prophet is talking about here is that in spite of the fact that God has been faithful to his people, God's people have rebelled against him. And the result is, is they were utterly estranged, separated from God. There's, there's no greater darkness than to be separated from God. And so I, Isaiah is, is making sure that before he informs these people of the great light, that they clearly see the darkness, both physical and spiritual, that is all around them. Church, don't miss this. The same is true for us in this Advent season. Unless we see the darkness around us, we will miss the great light that the Advent message brings. So what is the darkness that surrounds us? A couple weeks ago, I got an email from a lady in Virginia saying that her father was at a hospital here in Duke and that he was dying. And this lady asked if I would go visit her father and tell him about Jesus. 
because he, did, he didn't know Jesus and he didn't have many days left. And initially, I, I'll be honest, I was rather taken aback by the request for a, a number of reasons. But this week as I've been pondering this text, it hit me that the reason why this man's daughter emailed me is because she is profoundly aware of the darkness. She recognizes the darkness of this man who is lying in a hospital bed who does not know Christ and who refuses to even speak with me and whose eternal destiny is at stake. Do you see the darkness? The darkness is your neighbor. It's your classmate. It's your coworker. It's your family member. It's your friend who does not know Christ and who is facing eternal judgment because of it. The darkness is postmodern thought that has taken over academia and dominates our city that says there is no such thing as absolute truth. There's no right and wrong. There's no good or evil. The darkness is the world in which our children will likely grow up in that will be increasingly hostile to a Christian worldview. Do you see the darkness? But let us not forget, church, this darkness has two faces as it did in... Isaiah. Not only do we see the darkness of unbelief all around us, but just like the nation of Israel, we see that darkness of oppression and injustice all around us. Do you see the darkness? It's the rapidly increasing, excuse me, the rapidly decreasing amount of affordable housing in our city. It's the job market that looks past people who don't have a college degree and ignores people with a criminal record. It's the educational disparity in our city that is out of control. It is me too. It is the fact that we live in a society that people still need to be reminded that black lives matter, that brown lives matter. It's an addiction epidemic that is destroying families and enslaving individuals. Do you see the darkness? You know, in Alaska, they've come up with some pretty sophisticated ways of not seeing the darkness. And one of the newer and most effective methods is called bright light therapy. I'm not making this up. A treatment that, that originally was developed for people who suffer from sleeping disorders. And, and the idea is you sit or work near a light therapy box. And what this box does is it gives off bright light that mimics now natural outdoor light. It mimics sunlight. I think that's fascinating. The, the way that many Alaskans are now surviving the dark season is by pretending using artificial light to trick the mind into believing that it's not that dark out there. Israel did something very similar. Throughout the book of Isaiah and the entire Old Testament, we see that people became very skilled at pretending that it wasn't that dark out there. They dealt with the darkness of unbelief by turning to other gods, imitation gods who exuded a pretend light. The way they dealt with the darkness of oppression was to pretend like it wasn't that bad. I can't help but think of the passage in Exodus 16 when God's people are pleading with Moses to take them back to Egypt, back into slavery. You see, they failed to see the darkness. And because they missed the darkness, they weren't ready when the light came. How are we dealing with the darkness? What bright light therapy are we using in order to not see it? This past weekend, we experienced Black Friday, and, and tomorrow will be Cyber Monday. Um, 
And no doubt, if you know me, I, I love a good deal as much as the rest of you, but I can't help but wonder if this is the reason why we don't see the darkness, because we are so surrounded by shiny little trinkets that have this way of convincing us that it's not so dark out there. I mean, I, I can't help but imagine that Satan is throwing a party knowing that Advent, which is the church's moment to shine, has been consumed by stuff. I have to believe that they are rejoicing over that victory. And I'm not against gift giving, but I can't help but grieve over the fact that it has distracted us from the reality of the bright light that has come. No society in the history of the world has experienced such great wealth and prosperity. And, and, and uh, if we're honest, for many of us, it's, it's almost hard to go without. <laughs> We've got fast food, same-day shipping, 5G internet, Uber Eats, 401Ks, and the list goes on and on. And all these shiny things, they distract us, and they make it so easy to pretend like people are not every day dying and facing eternal condemnation that people aren't suffering and being oppressed and mistreated in more ways than we can fathom. I confess it is so easy for me to sit on my couch and allow the bright lights of my flat screen and my smartphone to convince me that the darkness isn't real. Do you see the darkness? Because until we see it, church, we will never rejoice over the fact that the bright light has come. I know this may not currently be a part of your holiday traditions, but church, this Advent season, we need to take some time to look at and to feel the darkness that is all around us so that we will be able to appreciate the great light. And yet, church, I think that's only half of the problem. We do need to be more aware of the darkness, but... I think the other reason why we yawn at the Advent message is because we've shielded our eyes from the light. You know, Alaska isn't all bad. I feel like I've been kind of rough on the state this morning. You should know that although, even though there are two months of continuous darkness in places, there are also two months of continuous light in certain places in Alaska. Pretty crazy. And once again, but in the opposite sense, the way for Alaskans to cope with this sort of environment is to pretend like the light is not there. You will not find a home in Alaska without blackout shades. Because in order to sleep in the summertime, you have to shield your eyes from the light. And when it comes to sunlight, that makes a lot of sense. It makes me think about the solar eclipse a couple years ago when we all bought those silly glasses because we weren't supposed to look directly at the sun. And I think that's a good idea, good advice. Don't do that. And yet this morning and really throughout the Advent season, I want to encourage you to pull up the shades, take off the protective glasses because we need to gaze directly at the sun. The S-O-N. We need to gaze at the sun. Look with me now at the rest of this text, verses 4 through 7. Here the prophet gives us a picture of what the bright light is that we're supposed to be marveling at. And I realize that you've already guessed it, but in spite of the fact that this text was written 700 years before the birth of Jesus, it's actually all about him. 
This text is all about Christ. And look with me now at verse 4. It says that this bright light is to come is, verse 4, for the yoke of his burden, the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. What is the source of, of this bright light? It's the destruction of oppression. It's the oppression that comes as a result of our sin, the oppression that comes from this broken world. It is that oppression destroyed. Verse 5, for every boot of the trampling warrior in battle, tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. What this verse reveals is that this great victory over oppression, it's not a one-time thing but rather all the war garments, they're going to be burned up. They will never be needed again because this peace is a worldwide peace that will never end. And then verse 6, the light gets so bright that we, that we want to turn away, but it's so beautiful that we have to stare at it. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. In verse 6, the prophet is revealing on what basis the events of verse 4 and verse 5 will happen, how the oppressor will be defeated, and how worldwide peace will come about. And no doubt it's not what we would have expected. One would expect that for this great oppressor to be defeated, we need a mighty warrior, someone who's going to conquer with strength and power. And that's not what the text says. The catalyst for this great victory is a child. But this is no ordinary child. And Isaiah goes on to paint a picture of what this sort of child this will be. And he gives us a description using four new names for this special son. And what the original audience would have recognized is that these were throne names. It's very common for a king at his coronation to be given new names that demonstrate his might and his power. And these are the throne names for King Jesus. The first name he's given is Wonderful Counselor. My apologies to the therapists in the room, but this does not mean he is a skilled psychologist. The original language here is this idea of a military strategist. Imagine a great war general with his map on the table laying out his masterful strategy for victory. But not only does this king have a great strategy, but he's also given the name Mighty God, which means the king actually has the ability to execute that strategy. It does us no good if the, the strategy is good unless this king can actually execute and succeed and have victory in this strategy. But this king is a mighty God. He's able to succeed. Then we're given this third name that reveals to us a little of what that strategy is. Everlasting Father. This king does not rule with strength and might, but with love and tenderness. To refer to a king as a father in this day and age was unheard of. Kings are to be bowed before. They're not those who you come to for a loving embrace. But this was no ordinary king. Then this fourth and final name reveals to us what kind of kingdom this king will bring, a kingdom that is unlike any other, a kingdom of peace, a kingdom that will put to death war and suffering, oppression and evil once and for all. And so I have to ask you, church, do you see the light? 
Do you see the child for who he really is? Do you see him as one who possesses the perfect strategy, possesses the power to accomplish that strategy? Do you see him as an everlasting father who longs to embrace you? Do you see him who has begun the process and one day will complete the process of destroying all the darkness, the darkness of oppression and unbelief once and for all? Do you see the light? And I want to let you in on a little secret. The way that you know whether or not you see the light is actually based on how you engage the darkness. Let me make this real practical for you. Do you believe, like this man's daughter who emailed me, that what that man in the hospital bed a couple miles down the road really needs is King Jesus? And that King Jesus truly has the power to rescue and redeem him for all humanity? for all eternity. If you believe that, you will be compelled to engage the darkness of unbelief that is all around us. You will be compelled to unashamedly point people to this child who was born king and who comes to rescue. And you will believe that when you proclaim that good news, your mighty God is going to succeed in drawing people to himself. Secondly, do you truly believe that King Jesus brings a kingdom of peace, a kingdom that will fill the earth and never end? Because if you do, you will be, in, you will be compelled to engage the brokenness that is around us. You will be compelled to fight for affordable housing, for, against joblessness, against educational disparity, to fight for the rights and dignity of all people, and on and on and on, because you trust that King Jesus is fighting with you. Do you see the light? Our passage ends with this final picture of how this is going to play out. This this is how the story ends, if you will. The text says, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. I heard a story uh, years ago of a parent whose child was struggling in school. And they were struggling to show what they know. That's an educational phrase. Um, Brilliant little girl who was struggling with testing, anxiety, not really sure what it was, but she wasn't performing well on tests, not as well as uh, she should have been. And so they had a conference with the teacher and, and the parent. And when they went into this conference, the teacher said, you know, sweetheart, I want to tell you, regardless of what you do for the rest of the year on these tests, I'm going to give you an A. Take it to the bank. Count it as done. You get an A. And the girl's like, wait, wait, no, that's not fair. I don't understand. Teacher said, you get an A. I'm giving you an A right now. It doesn't matter what you do. And so she left with this excitement, obviously, and and, and joy. I don't know about you, but I probably would have gotten really lazy at that point and not done any of the work. But what happened in this young girl's life is she began to perform. Knowing that she'd been given this grade, all of a sudden the the pressure was off and she began to perform as an A student and she began to make A's on her tests. Well, it's such a beautiful picture of what we see here. This is why the prophet is, is speaking in the perfect stance. He's saying, I guarantee you, I promise you, this is going to happen. Church, we've been given a picture of the end of the story and that should give us great hope. Hope that doesn't cause us to sit back and be passive, but hope that causes us to push out and to engage the darkness and to push back the darkness, knowing that we will win, that King Jesus will rule and reign for all eternity.
That's the good news of Advent, that he has come and he is coming back. And his light will know no end. My hope and prayer is that this Advent season, we will not be fooled by the shiny trinkets into thinking that it's not that dark out there. But that we will wage war against the darkness of unbelief and oppression and we will be filled with the hope that comes from knowing that a child was born and that this child conquered sin and death and the light of his kingdom will never go out. Would you pray with me? Father, I just confess my own unbelief. I fail to recognize the darkness and I so often shield my eyes from the light. If I truly believed, I would have so much more courage in the way that I engage the darkness that is all around us. Father, would you help us to recognize, to name, and to grieve the darkness that exists throughout our city. It often exists in our own hearts. And God, would we see the light? Will we, rem will we pull up the shades? Will we remove the glasses? And we will look directly at your beautiful son. And will we be filled with hope? And would that hope compel us to battle knowing that your son, King Jesus, wins? I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.